This copyrighted podcast of the James Perspective has been paid for and funded by James M. Wilkerson. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of this podcast are a permutation and combination of words and sentences used in this podcast without the express written consent of James M. Wilkerson and the James Perspective is strictly prohibited. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. We got we got the, the giant preacher back, and his microphone is hot. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> got Jim is back. I saw. I got to see Jim yesterday. He's passing through. Passing through. Right. He didn't leave. Was it leaving a pistol? Did he go to? Was he going east or was he coming west? He was heading back to be Texas, Jim. He visited, he visited with his dog for a bit, walked him, we walked him out to the creek, and then he and his wife rode off into the sunset, literally. Are you dog-setting his dog? Well, I think I'm stealing him. Mm. <laughs> you mean he's taking a liking to you? That dog loves where he lives right now. Uh, That's a happy yeah. dog. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was not like, terribly excited about seeing Emily and me yesterday. He was happy, but... You could tell that he was more preoccupied with his surroundings than with us. <laughs> he is. Uh, they 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 both tree squirrels now. One dog taught the other, and he is que- And Jim's dog has now officially treated his own squirrel. Wow, <laughs> he's worth a lot of money. Yeah, in Louisiana, yes. <laughs> But before he moved over to 1316, where my mother and father lived, he would never get to water. I literally picked him up and put him into Lake Darbone, and he just stood there paralyzed, like, what am I doing? And he quickly ran out of the water uh, and did not like it at all. In fact, he was very distrusting toward me after that moment. And so seeing these videos of his chasing sticks in the water and crossing the uh, creek back there behind my parents' house is he's a he's a different Willie. He's a William. <laughs> <laughs> so we all are uh, affected by our environment. Is that what you're saying? That it's more important. Uh, I don't, yeah, <laughs> either 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 that or yeah. I don't know. I don't know what you guys did to him, but you did something. He might have gotten his first taste of deer meat. <laughs> now you know what I really believe it was is that that we do have a country dog. Chris has seen him. He knows how. So whoever had this dog before, this dog we found him, or somebody found him. They tried, tried, tried to find the owner. There's no question this dog belonged to somebody. He was. He sits. He he does everything. He kennels. He knows what words mean. And we hate it that somebody lost him, but it's our game, right? And he lives in those woods. Well, Chris saw him immediately. Chris, who's a, who is who hunts squirrel said this guy this dog's been trained to hunt squirrel and sure enough he does well i think what happened was that when your dog came here he learned from the pro he just he just it was a he had a good mentor anyway that's what he was doing they they i think that uh that that emily had had business in florida she's in the consulting business and she had been over there for several weeks or months even and jim flew to florida they drove back together and on the way back, they stopped and said hello to our dog. 
<laughs> anyway, so that is your grand dog. I guess you'd call him that. He's one eye. He has one eye. Well, he has two, but one of them doesn't work. And um, anyway, that's it's been fun. Uh, you know, today's topic. Um, I, it, well, first, before we get started, Chris wants to make a. I, I'm going to call it a plug. It's a book that I was given many, many years ago by Charlotte's aunt, who's now deceased. She's a lawyer that was my kind of mentor when it came to law. She's the one that told me what law school would be like and what the interviewing process. She was ahead of me a few years. And so she she guided me and was very, very Charlotte and, and Peggy were very, very close. And she gave us this book. And would you tell us what it is real quick before? Because once we're into what Jim's in, we won't get back to this. Okay. <laughs> This is The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And um, if you really uh, want to read up on the details, and it's, it's laid out in a, in a legal way, uh, proving the case for Christ. And they, they do mention a lot of uh, different trials that there's been, that the evidence is, uh, well, I can't get all the verbiage for this. I'm not an attorney, but the evidence is is uh, is not real clear, but as they look at the different things uh, behind the murder, murder ahead of the murder, they can piece everything together. And uh, it's really a fascinating book. I just uh, I've had it for a number of years. I don't know that I've ever really read it through, uh, but uh, just reading uh, bits and pieces of it this morning, I I, I was very. Uh, Excited about it and, and thinking about a lot of our listeners out there want to get in depth about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is probably one of the uh, best written books on it besides the Bible. And it takes you to the Bible and, and presents the case from the things that are in the Bible. And even Joseph Arimathea, uh, who gave his grave, he was part of the Sanhedrin. And they go into all the different reasons why he was a good guy to be mentioned in the Bible because he really wasn't on the side of Christ and, and he wanted to make sure that everybody knew that he was dead, that Jesus actually died. And um, so it's it's a fantastic book to read. It does. It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an apology that follows it all the way through the resurrection, right? I mean, it goes all the way to yes. resurrection that, that, that it gives proof of the resurrection. It is I remember reading it, and it was amazing how well and clear he put it together. But he was talking, it seems to me, to other lawyers, and mm -hmm. so we were able to, um, our two lawyers, and we were able to follow it. But I, but uh, it's, it, we do have a copy at our home. I do recommend it, and yep. I'm glad that you brought it. Now I take a deep breath. Jim sent a um, summary of what we're going to talk about today, and you're going to have to summarize that summary. Jim, because uh, the summary would take the podcast. <laughs> Are you talking about the first one that I sent? I, both of them were pretty long. Yeah, yeah, I woke yeah, up this both. morning. <laughs> Sorry, last night I went to bed tired. I, I had been working on a paper very hard, and I read that, and I went, no, not happening this morning. I'll do it in the morning. I mean, tonight, I'll do it in the morning. I woke up this morning, and he had a summary of the summary. And I went, <laughs> you know, I, I'll, this is what I'll say. <laughs> I felt like Vicky Valancourt, whatever, college boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I think that we'll primarily be talking about the first text, which is the 
eschatological or end times preaching of the apostles after Christ's resurrection. And then, um, if time permits, we could go into some of those other sub-arguments. I think there are some sub-arguments that are stronger than others. And so this podcast, as I typically do, for selfish reasons, I use it as a soundboard to see which ones stick and which ones really do not. And so all of this podcast is going to be for a paper that I'm writing on the resurrection. And I'm trying to write it in um, a historical fashion rather than an apologetic fashion, if that makes sense. Okay. So, so with what you just said, let's make sure that anybody listening to this podcast, would you say, tell them what eschatology is? Yeah. Eschatology refers, is a study of the end times. Okay. And so, but particularly for Christianity, that's the second coming of Christ. So you're, you're going to talk about what, what the apostles taught about the end times after Christ was resurrected. Yeah, that, and my argument is that it wasn't just that they taught about the eschaton, that was central to their preaching after Christ's resurrection. Okay, so after Christ was resurrected, the the focus of the preaching of the apostles went to eschatology in yeah. times. Like okay. They were they were very eschatology driven. All right. Let's get it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so so I am nervous about presenting this because uh, I haven't written anything organized on it. So it might come across as unorganized and that's fine. That's gonna be how this podcast rolls. This podcast anyway. is known for not being on. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. yeah, you should see us trying to figure out which day it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Mondays or Wednesdays, Fridays or Tuesdays. Yeah, no, I got it. Um, but, uh, yeah, and I'm going to try bringing this down to the bottom shelf, but that's very difficult whenever you have it written on it and and organize your thoughts to where you can understand it fully. Okay. But this is essentially the gist of it for various reasons. All of the competing hypotheses for the resurrection have disappeared. So like that Christianity borrowed from other religions or that the early church leaders conspired together to make up a religion or that they were involved in myth-making or creating legend. All these other hypotheses have uh, gone away. Oh, and I like the hallucinogenian one. You didn't mention that one. Well, well yeah, I, I was getting to that. Okay. So all, these, <laughs> all these other hypotheses have gone away. Um, and it's not because of Christian apologetics. It's because secularists have on their own figured out the weaknesses of these hypotheses. Okay. And so I'm not going to get into that. We can get to that later. Right now, the omnipresence, not just mainstream, it's like it is the universal conclusion right now among secular historians who are not Christians that uh, what happened in early, in, to the earliest Christians are that they experienced hallucinations. Um, and instead of using the word hallucinations, they also they often replace that with visionary experiences, okay? And what they mean by visionary experiences are subjective visionary experiences, which are hallucinations. So 
visionary experiences equals hallucinations whenever you go read these authors, if you ever do. All right. And so essentially the story goes like this, that you have Cephas or Peter who receives the earliest vision and he gets the 12 together and they get in an excited state and they all believe that they see the risen Christ. And then uh, the movement grows from there. Later on, James, for some reason, who was not involved in Christ's movement, in fact, was portrayed as an antagonist toward the movement in the Gospels. Um, he later receives a vision. And then later on, so does the enemy of the church, Paul. And so essentially, the theory is a series of hallucinations. And I, I call it the serial hallucination hypothesis. Right. And so this caused the earliest leaders of the church to genuinely believe that Christ had resurrected or not resurrected, but that he rose from the dead. And from there, disciples built various conclusions. So am I making sense so far? Does that all make sense? I, I, yes. I, not, well, it wasn't as clear as I thought. Are you t are you giving it from the secular standpoint right there? Yeah. OK. And and, and again. I want I want to make sure this definition is secular. You said non Christians. It's it would it would be a Christian can be can speak about secular things, correct? Yes, yes. And so maybe that's the wrong nomenclature. But what I mean is that these are non Christians who are arguing against the historicity of the resurrection, and the arguments that you will see in the relevant historical literature from non Christians is that the earliest christians received hallucinations got it okay it's non it's so it's non-christian secular yeah non-christian seculars i'm with you i'd say that okay. Okay. Maybe, maybe just maybe we could just leave it non-christian historians like we could okay. we could say that as well the reason i don't like non-christian stories is like you have atheists who are christian historians they're just not christian so you know it's it's complicated. I'm trying to figure out what the best language is to communicate that. But just uh, yeah, that's, that's it's a good point. It's a good point. It is. It is. It is non Christians who are speaking of history about Christians. Yes. Got it. Yes. And so yeah, and so that's their theory. It's, it's hallucinations, and so the, the big players that you'll see this from are um, Gerd Ludman or. Uh, uh, I think it's uh, Gesa Burmese. Hey, let me make um, it. I think I can make this clear. Let me let me say this. I think I can make this clear before we go. I think that what you could say to compare to this, it would be somebody who's never played football writing on the history of football. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Well, I just so, think it's amazing that that these uh, secular. Did you say secular or non secular? These secular, these secular people come up with this idea that all of these disciples had hallucinations that they packaged together, and and that's that's a pretty uh, a pretty big leap, I would say. Well, I mean, if, you, if you're a never mind, you know what? I'm gonna let Jim get to his paper, okay? Because I had something funny to say, and it would be funny, but it would distract. Let's move on. I'm sorry. I get you. I get what you're saying. I do. Well, well the long and short of it, Chris, is that. Um, a lot of historians agree with you, even 
even non-Christian or secular, however we want to say it, atheist Christian historians. So atheist Christian historians agree with you. This is what I was going to say. Those historians, because they are taking hallucinogens, they think everybody else is. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, what I was saying, Chris, is that even atheist Christian historians, they see the problems that you see, that serial hallucinations are highly unlikely, and they're very much unsatisfactory historical conclusion that you could draw from the rise of early Christianity. And so they agree, like E.P. Sanders is a major one. He's not a Christian, and he was studying the rise of early Christianity, and he saw the competing hypotheses, namely the hallucinations, and he said, that's just not satisfying. And he, he just he shrugged his shoulders. He said, we'll probably never know why Christianity arose, but it did. And and we know the miracles don't happen, but it would be foolish to try presenting competing hypotheses, essentially. And so, anyway, all that's to say is that there is an intrinsic weakness to the hallucinations theory in the sense that the way that they're saying these hallucinations happen is highly unlikely as it is. Like, almost as unlikely. I, I would say as unlikely, but... I'll, I'll give them that almost as unlikely as someone rising from the dead, like that, that, that those hallucinations would happen in such a way. But while I was studying this, and this is the crux of my paper, while I was studying this, and this is, by the way, kind of both Christian uh, apologists and atheist historians, both of them often ignore what the disciples uh, believed and were preaching based on these appearances. Uh, in other words, they leave it as they believe that someone rose from the dead. But that's not what we see in their defense in the New Testament. And in fact, it's not even a defense. The language that you see in the New Testament is often offensive language. It's language that's meant to go out and preach to people. It's not meant to defend their isolated cult. They're like intentionally going out into the world and trying to spread this message in a very urgent fashion because what you see, and this is what historians who are not necessarily studying the resurrection, but they're studying what the apostles preached, is that these guys think that they're going to be part of Jesus' second coming while they're still alive. And that's something that's often ignored in studying the resurrection. In other words, these atheist historians isolate these visions from the apostles later, but like somewhat immediate preaching that, hey, Jesus rose from the dead and he's coming back probably in our lifetime. And they, they were they were hoping for that because of yes. their positions of power that would be handed down to them, don't you think? In other words, well, just the human I, nature, I, I, the human nature. Yeah, well, I think that's clear for the text that Paul, whenever he talks to his audience, is using the first-person pronoun, we, and talking about like the transformation of their bodies and what's going to happen whenever the second coming happens. 
and that that he might not have known when the eschaton was going to come about, but he thought it was that there was a good, likely chance that it would occur during his lifetime and during his audience's lifetime. I think that one could argue that. Hmm. Um, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that there. I'm not I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with what he was preaching. You know, like he was he was given a possibility, like hey. There's a strong possibility that this can happen now because guess what? They thought that Christ's resurrection, and this is clear too, that Christ's resurrection was the first fruits of the resurrection. And so if his resurrection is the first fruits of the resurrection, guess what happened? The end times. So the second coming, in essence, like the process of that has already started. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And and really the, the truth of the matter is that uh, when, when Jesus sets up his his rule, whether we're talking about millennial reign or whatever, that the uh, apostles are going to have uh, prominent places in it, would you say? Um, I'm not too familiar with millennial views uh, as far as that goes. And I'm not going to get necessarily into the specific of that. I'm trying to keep it at a bird's eye view at this point to where we're take, we're looking at this. We're looking at the apostles preaching from the Michelin blimp and we're saying, okay, what's the general gist of what they're preaching? And whenever you look at the new Testament, the general gist of what they're preaching is get ready for the second coming because it's coming. Michelin has a blimp. What's the, what's the blimp? That Good year. Over? Good year. Michelin Good doesn't year. have a blimp. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry for that. Michelin or Good year. You know, that was my bad. I know the Goodyear sponsors this podcast, so that was totally my bad. Um, they don't anymore. Anyway, sorry. Especially when I come on. Anyway, yes. Yeah, so anyway, I don't think I don't think that detracts from what I'm arguing. So what I'm arguing here is that we're, we're, we're looking at this from a Goodyear blimp, and we're saying, okay, what's the gist of what's happening under us, and what's what's happening, like. Whenever you're looking at a blimp at a football game, you see a football game and you kind of can determine who's who's winning and who's not. But you can't really tell which players are in the game or, you know, what necessarily the play that just happened was. You could just sort of tell, OK, they're on the 20 yard line. They're about to score, you know, or something like that. And so anyway, all I'm saying is that we're trying to get a general idea of what they're preaching and what they're preaching on is that the second coming is about to happen and you guys need to get ready for it. And so, and, and, and they're telling these people this, not in the sense that they have head knowledge, but this is how you act in preparation for Jesus' second coming. So all of like the practical preachings that they have, uh, such as, you know, the fruits of the spirit and uh, uh, how a church is to, to be sh- uh, set up and how you're supposed to care for the orphans, widows and the homeless. They're preaching this in the light of the second coming, saying you're doing these things so that whenever Christ comes, you have something to show for the gospel that he gave you. And that's still good for today because the second coming may happen soon. Soon. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And I, and I agree with that. And I think that this is going to have larger implications. My, my study on the resurrection of Christ is actually going to have larger implications on how I how I structure my theology in general, that Christian theology needs to be eschatologically oriented. All right. But that's a conversation for another time. Wow. I didn't expect that, that statement, but it's true. Why? 
I just didn't. I just didn't expect mm-hmm. that statement. I would have. Yeah. I would have said that the focus should stay on sanctification. Well, sanctification is the focus in light of the eschaton. So, sanctification is the walk of Christianity. Now, now, I think that if we go down this road, then we're never going to come back to what my paper is. So, okay. we can we can discuss this another time, though. Okay. All right. All right. So, all I said was it was a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. And so, anyway, my my point from this is that uh, if we were to read the secularists or the atheist uh, historians' books, then and, and we were just to leave it at that, never go and read the New Testament, then what we would think that we would see in the New Testament are the early Christians' defense of seeing the resurrected Jesus. Now, what we see whenever we go into the New Testament is that that's a gift. Um, the only time that we see a serious defense of it is in 1 Corinthians 15. Everywhere else, and, and, a, and a serious investigation into what the mechanics of the resurrection are. Like Paul says, your body's sown in dishonor, it's raised in honor, that the more, uh, mortal puts on immortality. Like he's talking about the transformation of the body. All right. Um, but outside of that, Resurrection of Christ and the mechanics of the resurrection are given. They're preaching something beyond that. So, in other words, they're not being they're not perceiving themselves as being attacked by uh, Jewish and uh, was Jewish and Gentile leaders for their ridiculous belief in the resurrection. They're saying whether you like it or not, this happened and. This is the result of that happening. Like Christ is coming back and you guys need to repent right now and accept him as Lord so that whenever he does come back, you won't be forever killed. I get you. No, you know, it does make sense. Basically, what you're saying is the reason it went to eschatology important is because the urgency of you accepting Christ before it happens. You'll be too late. Why? Why do we tarry when Jesus is pleading, pleading for you and for me? He's, he's, he's you better get on it. Yes, yes. And so, uh, if these were if these were hallucinations, and, and, and by the way, I, I do like that Gerd Ludman and others have gone into like the psychoanalyses of people who undergo hallucinations because it helps us better understand sort of what happens whenever someone does believe that someone rose from the dead, like from hallucination. And first, first thing I'll notice that that's very, very rare. And the second thing is, is I don't know if there's a documented case, a documented clinical case of someone who experienced the hallucination of the dead, who for the rest of their lives believed that this person had risen from the dead. Well, there's a there from a secular standpoint, it's easy to know when someone's hallucinating instead of actually having a, a vision or a true vision. Is they say dude a lot afterwards. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And so we never see dude in the New Testament, and that's why I'm going to argue. Yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> uh, uh, so. But the like, 
I think that this is very important because I have tried. I, I tried going and finding this. Like I've, I've tried Googling it. Maybe you guys, I would appreciate it if you guys could help me find this. If you're, uh, if you have any time to research, but see if you can find a documented clinical case of an individual. It doesn't have to be group, just of an individual who permanently believes that someone had been resurrected from the dead. Or not resurrected, raised from the dead, and that's another thing I'm going to. Other than Christ, we don't have to discuss it. Other than other than Christ, Red, wait, what's what's up? I want, I'm going to make sure I understand your question because Christ was Christ was resurrected, right? Yeah, that's that's so. What I want to emphasize that we don't have to go here right now is that there is a difference between being raised from the dead and resurrection. So while we took a little bit of a break there for a technical purpose, uh, the three of us talked outside of Jim's presence, and we, none of the, well, maybe two and a half of us didn't get what the difference was between resurrection and being raised from the dead. And so I just initiated that. So the difference between the resurrection of the dead and being raised from the dead is that there are instances I believe this. Chris believes this as well. I know that. So Chris, you and I are going to high five on this one. Okay. People have risen. People have risen from the dead. Okay. Um, there are documented instances of this. Nothing can explain it. I think that Craig Keener has done a really good job of documenting these cases. I think that people have been uh, saying it over and over again, and the Western world closes their ears, says, "No, no, 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 no. That that stuff doesn't happen." Uh, and they say miracles don't happen because miracles don't happen. Okay. I think people have risen for the dead. This does not mean that they have been resurrected though. Okay. Resurrection is first a permanent condition, a, a permanent condition. That makes sense. Is, yes. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is that it is in times oriented, meaning that the resurrection is one of the final acts that brings us to eternal life. All right. Whereas just simply rising from the dead doesn't you rise from the dead. You're going to die again anyway. All right. It's just an act that happens, a miraculous act that happened in history. Okay. Whereas resurrection is something entirely different. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes sense. Okay. All right. So I will get into that, into my paper uh, because that's going to, it's, it's not going to be a central argument for the apostles pre preaching about the second coming because they're like the New Testament is just immersed in it. And so that resurrection means that it's really not going to be important from argument. It's just going to contribute to it. In the second simple Jude Jewish context, that's what resurrection meant, though. It meant, hey, we're all going to be risen for the dead, whether that's everyone, the wicked and the righteous or there were certain Jews that believed that just the righteous would be raised from the dead, whereas the wicked remained in their graves. Um, it doesn't matter. It's a general resurrection, and it's the renewing of is the renewing and reuniting of Israel with their God. That's what it is. And so, whenever the Jews speak of resurrection, that's what they're talking about. They're not talking about someone simply rising from the dead. And what this has to do with the argument is that you're going to have a belief, like like if you're going to have a hallucination that someone rose from the dead, it does not naturally follow 
that a Jew would say that person had been resurrected. It just means that person was raised from the dead. Okay. I get get your distinction. mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So there's a distinction there. Now, what this has to do with the larger argument is that the secularists or the atheists, they argue that uh, these apostles experienced hallucinations. They see someone rising from the dead and they believe that. And that's it. But then they don't go on to say, well, this is the reason why they started preaching the second coming. They kind of just leave it at that. Like the New Testament is all about defending the idea that someone rose from the dead. And that's not what the New Testament is about at all. The New Testament, I said this before, the New Testament takes that as a given. And they tell people, both Greek and Jews, who grow increasingly and rapidly antagonistic toward the movement to the point that they killed the three central pillars of Christianity, Peter, Paul, and James. The Christians, nonetheless, are going out to them and saying, look, like we are trying to do this for your own good. You need to repent right now because Christ can come back today. Got it. Yes. Yeah. And that, so, so that's the central, I think that's the central thrust of my paper, um, that there's hallucinations maybe, maybe get us to communities believe that Christ rose from the dead, even though I don't know of any clinical psychological literature that, sorry, give me one second. There's going to be some background noise. Um, but that there's uh, clinical psychological literature that demonstrates someone permanently believed that someone rose from the dead. What you'll see in the clinical psychological literature is it was like he was there. I touched him. I felt him. I heard him. He talked to me. Uh, it was peaceful. And that, by the way, these are individual hallucinations where that's happening. Collective hallucinations, you get much more um, modest conclusions. Uh, like 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 Fatima, like the sun dancing, or um, that's Fatima, yeah, or, a, thing, or, yeah. or, or a statue moving, um, like like a finger of a statue moving or a statue weeping, certain things like that. Like first off, these these conclusions don't lead someone to drastically change the central doctrines of the religion. In fact, they often affirm them. The second thing is that these conclusions are much milder than the idea that that Jesus resurrected or Jesus rose from the dead not only that he resurrected not only that he's the crucified messiah not only that he's he's to be worshiped as god and he's about to come back like right. that's the conclusion okay. that and these apostles that's the conclusion that these apostles drew they didn't draw a conclusion that oh we saw him i swear that we saw him Okay, I, I, I get you. I, I really do. I really understand what you're getting at. Is it's one of the reasons that Christianity does preach you need to get on this salvation thing because it's soon. You better get on this Jesus thing now because time is fleeting. The moments are passing, passing for you and for me. And other, that's why we have that as a, a central tenet of, of our religion now. I get you. I really do. May I ask this question though? Mm-hmm. And I, I think I know the answer, but I want to give you give it the opportunity. You're not being anti-Catholic when you talk about Fatima and the things they saw, but during that time, that did drastically influence the Catholic Church to be anti-communist. 
that doesn't mm-hmm. fit as being that major? No. No, because it would be it would have to be something like adding someone to the Trinity. Gotcha. And it it would have to be it would have to be like adding some person in a peasant town to the Trinity. I gotcha. But, but it's easy to see the significance of this, at least. If, and I have not, I have not fact checked you. I'll leave that to Politico. But um, what you're getting, what I'm, if I'm what I, if I'm getting what you're talking about, the, we've always talked about the miracle that these twelve men who did not show the backbone before the tearing of the veil and the and we're really the the resurrection, they started showing. They're, they they changed after that, and we've all recognized that. But what you're telling me is there was a shift of doctrine. Hey, we don't even have time to go. We're this resurrection is real, guys. You best not tarry, and you better accept this. And it becomes an urgency to get the word out before it's too late, and people die permanently unnecessarily. Right. Well, that's that's going to be another one of my arguments is that this movement. It wasn't just about apologetics. For them. They weren't. They weren't right. defending themselves. Right. They were. They were very empathetic. Urgent. They were trying. Yes. What's up? It was an urgent act. Wanting them to accept. That's what I guess I was trying to say. That if I didn't, I wouldn't. No, no, no. You were that, like I'm building on that. Okay, I'm building okay. on that because 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 while I'm doing like while I'm building on yours, I'm trying to bring it back to why these hallucination theories are wrong. Hallucination theories don't pres- don't produce an empathetic movement that drastically changes a religion's doctrine. All right. And, and it's the doctrine. It's not just like some doctrine, because this is why I'm going to say it's not like Fatima. Anti-communism is not a central Christian doc- doctrine. Okay. Like, and I know that you you might make a joke about that, but it's not it's, it's like, if you think about the central Christian doctrines, it's very few and they're very solid. The Trinity uh, Christ's resurrection and um, the second coming, like things like that. Like they're very few and it would be like altering that central doctrine. So one of the central doctrines for Jews was monotheism. There's no God, but Yahweh. What we see with Christians is an introducing of there's one God, Yahweh and Jesus. This drastically changed it, and that's why Jews were persecuting the Christians, and that's why they killed James. That's why they killed Stephen. Yeah, but you kind of you kind of did irritate me this morning because when I woke up and read your new your second one, you brought up Kairos, and that brought that led me down a rabbit trail last night. This yeah, Curios, 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 yeah, Curios, yeah. So yeah, Curios, yeah. So he is like it. So Jesus Christ, it's not just that he's called curious, it's that he's prayed to. He's seated on the throne with the Father. Um, he's invoked along with the Father. And what are some other things? Oh, yeah, he has hymns. Books Sorry. are written on that one word. Curious, yes. yes. Yeah, it is. Well, yeah, because... You can't because just throw that say, word out there. <laughs> right, right. No, no, no. And, and by the way, for the audience, curious means Lord. Okay, now... There are people who have tried saying, well, it doesn't mean the capitalized L Lord, or it doesn't mean 
Lord in the sense is Yahweh. And it, do, it definitely does not mean that Jesus is Yahweh. I'm not saying that. Yahweh is the Father. Okay? But the earliest Christians had a binitarian worship of Jesus. It was a, it was a, it, so we call it Trinitarianism. Uh, you can call it, uh, it either uh, binitarianism or binitarianism, however you want to say it. You see that with Christian worship of Jesus. He's worshiped right there alongside God through hymns, prayers, invocations, um, whatever you have it, meals, the Lord's Supper, that's a cultic meal. And so anyway, all that's to say, and, and all of the phrases of uh, uh, being in Christ or Christ in you, that these were characteristics attributed only to the Father, right? That means that Christ is everywhere. Also, Christ is Lord of creation, uh, that uh, every knee should bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Like, these are highly exalted sayings that are attributed to Jesus Christ. Like, these are, or that are uh, given to Jesus Christ. Um, and so, and, and by the way, these are in pre-Pauline hymnic formation. So, these are Christians who are uh, singing hymns, and Paul just simply put these hymns into his writings, meaning that these beliefs came before Paul was writing. All right, so these are very, very early beliefs. And and I'm just saying that hallucinations don't get us from dead person rising to that person being worshipped alongside Yahweh. And then these Christians intentionally bringing that message to the synagogues where they're surely going to get persecuted and probably stoned for suggesting the beliefs. So, so it's not just it's not just suggesting. It's like you're you're demanding that these people do the same or else they're going to get punished for not doing so. Yeah. All right. I, I, I guess, I guess I want to keep asking why you say certain things because sometimes you're, you're, you're staying ahead of me as to who this is even directed to. But, mm -hmm. but, but we, I, I, I think that, that it is another thing that most Christians that have studied the Bible even a little bit get this is that, it was weird. The, the the Jews fought and fought and fought this monotheism. They fought it. They kept going back to cows and they kept going back to all kinds of, of pagan type worships. And, and God kept punishing them. And then they would come back to God and say it's one God. And then they would fall again and then do it again. Fine. They got it through their thick heads, and I know that I have a thick head, so I would have been one of the thick heads. I don't, I'm not judging them at all. Okay. So finally, finally, they do get it. And now you can't budge a Jew off of monotheism. They believe it absolutely. And right before Christ comes along, that's when I look at it. It's like, okay, now they're finally monotheistic, and he, and they, and he gives them this triune God. Man, what a curveball. I see yeah. why they swung and missed. I really yes. do. Mm -hmm. Well, how does yeah. how does uh, the different passages in the Old Testament? Uh, nobody has problems with the Jews, I guess. Do not have problems with this uh, the phrase "the Spirit of the Lord," because there is a third person in the Holy Trinity, and Jesus said, uh, "If I go away, I will send another," and He was talking about the Holy Spirit. So we believe in the Holy Trinity. And uh, like I say, it's very hard to explain, but I believe in the Holy Trinity. Right. But my point I'm making, Pastor, is that 
they, 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 it was the God, I don't think, let up until the Jews accepted that there was just one God. And this had to have been confusing to them. And so what I think is amazing what Jim is talking about today is once, once there was the resurrection, there wasn't even an apologetic for any of this anymore. It was Jesus is coming back soon. And we are worried about your soul. You need to come yes. to this. And my point is, it would have been harder for Jews than anybody else to accept that because it does sound like three gods. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. And they still said, "We're look, you need to accept this because, mm-hmm. and they didn't go into apologetics. That's the amazing thing to me. I mean, now whether yeah. I got this right, but that's, I get why Jim finds this so fascinating. Now the hallucination part of it, I, my problem with, with going into that as far as just to the layman like me, is I've never thought that they were smoking dope, you know, or, <laughs> well, well, hallucinations could be caused by grief or like the suffering of, uh, a lost one through violence. Like you just witnessed a very terrible accident and your loved one is now dead that that could produce grief hallucinations and things like that. So, so it's not that you're smoking. And the difference between a dream dream and a hallucination would be what then? Um, the hallucination would be that you're uh, awake and you're, you, you think that someone walks through the door. Sometimes these hallucinations talk to you. Sometimes you can smell them. Sometimes you can touch them. Uh, Um, things like that. And, Okay, okay, let me see if I can get it then. A, a dream is you're asleep. A vision, you're awake, but you know it's just a vision. It's not you. It's not happening right then. It's just a vision. Hallucination is you yeah. think it's real. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yes. But yes. it's hard. It's, it's hard for everybody to see a hallucination at one time. Like the disciples when they're in the room and Jesus walks through the wall. And so that can't be a hallucination because they all saw him. And Thomas, was it Thomas? He put his uh, that would finger. Be, it could be an illusion. Right? So, I, well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because the individual hallucinations, most of the time, people can, can recognize their hallucinations, um, that these are not things that actually happen in the interviews that they have from the clinical psychologist. They say it was like he was in the room, or it was like he was talking to me. I could hear his words. Um, that that word "like" means that they know that that wasn't reality; that it was just like that. Okay, and they know that that person is still in the grave. There have been a few instances where someone is convinced temporarily, though, is convinced that someone rose from the dead, um, and that. That wow, okay, this this guy's actually alive. But then later they're able to be reconvinced that no, this person's still dead. Um, and as far as the as, as far as the group appearances go, you can have a setting, you can have an environment to where everybody sort of gets excited because they're kind of expecting a similar thing. Now, the the Visions that they see in a collective, you could call it a collective, 
hallucination, even though collective hallucinations, technically, that's an oxymoron. But you can still have people seeing roughly the same thing because in their individual heads, they're all expecting what the person next to them is expecting. And in their minds, they're projecting into reality what they want to see. And so they're all like like a statue. All of them can say that a statue moved or they're all expecting to see a weeping statue. They could all say, yeah, I saw this weeping statue. And they can genuinely believe it, even though if you if you push them on it, the details will differ drastically. But, but they, it's, hmm. yeah, the shepherds saw the angels, heard him singing and knew that Emmanuel had been born. And that wasn't a hallucination. That was all of them seeing the same thing and and running from their flock, leaving their flock, and going to the place of the birth of Jesus. I mean, I still, I, I really, the last thing that you said, I really don't understand because I don't know uh, of a an occasion historically uh, or or today where uh, everybody had the same hallucination. Well, it's not the same hallucination. I want to emphasize that, but they have the same expectation, and their minds have been able to produce similar visions because they're all sort of expecting the same thing. Yeah, but a and vision. So I mean, I, I, I mean, we can we can all sit here right now and visualize the same thing. Yeah, but that wouldn't be a hallucination. No, 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 it wouldn't. But you could call it mass ecstasy. And so, and so that's what that's what the clinical term. That's what happens every time a crowd sees the prime minister of our president of Italy. <laughs> I do. I do that. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow he doesn't get to tie in Italy to this. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so so yes, hallucinations. You're 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 dead on it, Chris. Hallucinations are individual experiences. But what we're talking about here is whatever the expectations are similar, and therefore I can sort of produce a similar vision in my mind projected onto reality, really believe that I see it and see something similar to the person next to me, even though the hallucinations are entirely individual. And so what the clinical, the clinical psychologists have realized that, that these are not group hallucinations, but they are mass ecstasy experiences. Like that's sort of the term that they put onto it to keep from calling it a hallucination. They're all sort of seeing the same thing even though the individual hallucinations are differing and the things that they're usually seeing, like I said earlier, are very mild. They don't change much uh, as far as like central doctrines or how you live your life, because what it is is like a statue moving her finger or a person weeping. I mean, I mean, I mean what we're talking about is we're talking about is some of these things. It, it, and again, I don't want anybody to think we're being anti Catholic here. But there's been things where, uh, well, three fourths of us. Anyway, uh, <laughs> anyway, there have been there. There are people who go to Mexico and and pilgrimage to see uh, what is it? What's that called? Uh, I forget what they call it. Um, but they, they but they say that they you know seen crucifixes bleed and things like that. That's what you're referring to, right? Yeah, yeah. It's just just certain. Um, things like that. And also, I don't want to discount, you know, anything that is not necessarily mainstream Protestantism or whatever as not actually happening. Like, in fact, a lot of these, a lot of these quote visions 
uh, simply beg the question of why you're calling them visions. Um, because you haven't proved that they didn't happen. Like, and I'm not saying that you have to prove that. I'm just saying that it begs the question, like, do you know that these were hallucinations or, or just something actually happened? Well, right. All right. And I, I don't want to make you have to go into, into an explanation of that. I really mean this. We, we're not here to, to bash anything. I'm trying to say that, that basically if someone, if, if three people say they saw a crucifix bleed, mm-hmm. that's what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah they, it's like it's 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 something general. They would probably disagree on where it was bleeding and how much it was bleeding. Like, but but some super general thing happened. So, like a crucifix bleeding, or like a statue weeping, or the sun dancing. It's like it's super general. Not really like with, in comparison to the resurrection stories. Really, really mild. Okay. Right. Right. I, I mean, I, all right. What I guess again, what we're what you're getting at, and, I'm, and I am getting it. Even if it's real, even if the if even if if one of the uh, hosts starts bleeding, that did not change what the Catholic Church did. It affirmed it, it strengthened it, but didn't change it. Okay, we're going to change. No longer do we believe in transubstantiation. Something major like that is what you're saying. Yeah. And that well, and I do again. I want to emphasize that the thing I've gotten from this today, and then we're gonna get if, if we're pushing an hour, so Glenn's got to get his shot at it. He always got to let George Harrison have a shot, even though most of the songs come from Harrison and I mean come from uh, Lennon and McCartney. Um, but <laughs> but 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 what what got me was is again I I think that Chris and I if we were just talking we would say it was amazing what happened to the apostles after the Holy Spirit indwelled them, that they became different human beings on the day of Pentecost. Absolutely different. And I would say, yes, they were. That's right. I agree. But today I would say there was a huge shift in the focus and what they were preaching from anything they had been preaching to now. Oh, my goodness. You need to accept this. This is happening, guys. This is, is happening, Reg. Um, I, yeah. I I think that if you're a Monty Python fan, you'd laugh at that. Um, <laughs> but but that's I get it. That, that's the thing that Jim has given me that I will see differently now. That watch what happens to the preaching post resurrection. True. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and 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 they're saying this like you guys need to believe this now. I I don't care if you bring out the stones. Like you guys have to believe this. Like it absolutely you you know it. So Paul gets stoned, gets tossed out of the city, he goes right back in. Why? It's not because he's suicidal. If there was suicidal, Peter would have stayed in prison, you know, like things like that. But they're going back in because they're like, this is this is something that's more important than my life. Hallucinations don't get us there. I got it, Glenn. Well, I'm, you know, uh, I've never thought about the whole, I guess because I accepted the whole resurrection as a Christian, I never thought about, and I like this, that we're thinking about the other side and why someone who doesn't want to believe this for whatever reason um, has decided that it's an hallucination. Yet, 
fucking hallucination lasts for as long as it has and become more prevalent. Uh, I think is Jim's point and how convicted these people who saw this event, this is beyond a hallucination that, you know, uh, hey, this is beyond Trump derangement syndrome, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> In other words, uh, it's, it's like a conviction. It's totally throughout their body the conviction that you have to believe this. You don't understand. This is too important for me to not want you to believe it. Even if you jail me, I think some Christians were actually put on a throne and burnt from an iron throne that was heated to white hot. And they did it. Uh, they told them strongly they believed in the resurrection. And that is, you know, I don't even like to think about that image of the iron throne that the Romans heated uh, to white hot, and then someone just got on it. Because, yes, I believe that strongly. Um, that should tell us all we need to know. I think it's even more telling is, so the quote-unquote inventors of this religion put them in a position, put themselves in a position where they were urgently asking these people to repent and it wasn't in a way of defensiveness like you're attacking my views and therefore I'm upset and I'm going to defend my views and I'm going to go raise an army or raise someone to challenge it wasn't them. They, they, were, they were very it wasn't political, it wasn't military it was like even empathy for the Jewish Sanhedrin it was like for the people that were killing them, they were like yeah, you got to believe this. Um, and, and that was the inventors of the religion, you know. And so I can see, I can see how later people, I can see how later people become martyrs, um, because you know, like they they genuinely believe it. They're not lying to themselves. Uh, I think that the terrorists who flew their plane into nine eleven genuinely believed what they believed. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done it. Um, it doesn't mean that it's true. But I will say, what's up? Well, another thing, the terrorists have been indoctrinated for that mission, I guess you'd say, over their, over their, their whole system is designed that way. In other words, their schools, everything. Whereas the whole system was designed not to believe that Jesus rose. Well, yeah, that's it. So, like, but you have to different. Yeah, the thing that I yeah the, the difference is that uh, we can we can say that the terrorists were indoctrinated. You can't indoctrinate yourself. Like that's something that I think is psychologically impossible. I guess mm-hmm. maybe I guess maybe you could lie over and over and over to yourself, but like the, people don't argue that. Historians don't argue that. Like they they've gotten rid of this notion that the apostles were somehow great legends or things like that because everybody everybody Christian atheist alike looks at what happened to the apostles and they're like, okay, they, they genuinely believe this. And so that means that something happened, something significant happened 
to make them believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now, can I go back to the big to the blimp? Yeah. Can I go back to the blimp picture now? Yeah. Who are these guys that are claiming it was hallucination? These are the atheist historians. Okay. They're the anti-Christian Christian historians. Right. It's it's it's, yeah. it's it's people who don't believe in Christ writing about the movement of Christ. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's who that yeah. is. And um, that is sort of an apologetics argument still, whether you're saying it's not is or it's not, by saying that you're claiming that this is not hallucinogenic is a is a response that I would consider an apologist would would give. Um, yeah. Well, I think that no, no matter what is your history you're writing, you're going to be arguing in an apologetic tone. So, like my thesis, I got you. you could say was apologetic. But the thing is that I'm trying to understand. It's not just leaving it at the rising of the body of the resurrection or the bodily resurrection. It's not. What's the word that I'm looking for? So I'm not leaving it as, oh, these disciples believe this. It's like, no, what did this belief produce? And yeah. what, yeah, and so, and so sort of what are the long-term repercussions in the lives of the apostles from this event? And that's kind of the, like N.T. Wright, I think, does this, he does a really good job. He doesn't go as much into eschatology, I don't think. Uh, if I'm remembering it correctly, into his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, he does talk about how Jesus' movement during his ministry is a kingdom of God movement. But then he kind of leaves it that he doesn't talk about what the apostles later preached. He might have done that in his book before. But anyway, the point is is that um, this is often missed in apologetics because people are so fixated on how can you believe that someone rose from the dead uh, to where they miss the larger point is how can you go into the synagogues and into Greek cities and empathetically preach this thing like that you know is probably going to kill you and you don't right. you're not doing it in a way that you're gonna raise an army or anything. You're you're doing this in a way where it's like even the people who are trying to kill me, I I have seen it. And I want them to be saved as well. All right. So, so right. what I what I would say that practically for us today is that if these apostles were became so focused on the return of Jesus Christ and the fleeting time you have, the soonness of it, um, that if they were willing to die, not willing, they they didn't care about death. It was obvious that they were just doing it in the face of death. It didn't matter. The urgency to them to get this message to the world was absolutely their first priority. Yes. Okay. And I, I do see that. I never saw why that urgency, but I do get it. And I, and I'm, and I, you always take it. I always take a chance when I go into some of these lyrics, these songs I know, but that whole time we've been doing this, it's softly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me here at the portal. He's waiting and watching, watching for you and me. But when you get to the third verse of that, I've always thought it was so morbid. But it goes like this. Time is now fleeting. The moments are passing, passing from you and from me. The shadows are gathering, meaning the the end times are coming. The shadows are gathering. Deathbeds are calling, calling for you and for me. 
that's what those guys were telling you urgently. That song picks up exactly what Jim is saying. Don't you think? Oh, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Who, yeah. That's why God wanted me to know the third verse of that song. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that, yeah, that, that sort of, it's, it's not something that I came up with as an argument. It's just something that you kind of stumble upon whenever you're, doing the research you're trying to figure out okay like nc Wright does a really good job of using the uh the bridge metaphor like how do you get from how do you get from monotheism to what early christianity preached like what's the bridge that gets you there and he also goes into the hallucination hypothesis he says it gets us somewhere. The hallucination hypothesis gets us to the belief, but potentially there there are even difficulties in that. But it, it could potentially get us to the belief that someone rose from the dead. But that gets us about a fifth of the way to what was being preached in the New Testament. That doesn't get us anywhere near close to why the apostles lived the rest of their lives the way that they did. All right. So so you know it's interesting to me again to. Uh, and the chosen really, I think, has done a good job at least through the first three seasons of demonstrating the difficulty that the that the um, that the disciples, not the apostles, but the disciples had that they, um, you know, they came from a Jewish faith, and it. I do believe that it took those miracles to let them see that he was the Messiah. That it was because they were so embedded in this idea that there was one God. They were he was going to send somebody down there to kill the Romans. That's that's what they thought. Yeah, that's right. And so, God, Jesus had to be here to talk to them about no, I am the Messiah. But that's you. You got it all wrong as to what they were in the wrong dispensation. Yeah. <laughs> And so, and so the miracles, ha- I think, did have to happen. And they, and they do a good job where they're sitting around a campfire discussing that. And I'm going like, well, you know, there are people being healed that aren't really getting it. That they're just want- they're glad they're getting healed. And I don't doubt that necessarily, right? What I am saying, though, is that those, those disciples were going like, uh, he's the Messiah. <laughs> there is no question he's the Messiah. Then and and so, but I, I think what I like about what we learned today, and Jimmy did a great job on this, is yes. that, that there's an urgency on this, and I have not had it. I've not really had. It. I don't have. To, well, I can get to that tomorrow. No, time is fleeting. <laughs> it's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I, and <clears throat> to take this out of the historical argument and into practical application, my sort of leap from this we call it that is that the apostles were concerned that it was going to happen that day like we should be that much more concerned about it and i'm not i i fall far short of that and i don't even know i don't know how to balance it like i don't know how to how to be urgent about it while simultaneously not looking like the church lady on saturday night live yeah let me say this, Jim. I'm going to say this. You might be able to figure it out, but I'm not. I'm definitely not going to bring up food. But I, one morning, had a thought that was put into my head. You need to go talk to this particular lady now. And I dismissed it. And she died 
that afternoon before I could get there. I was going to go. I said, I'll just go that afternoon. I'll go after work. No, I was, I, I really, I really, and I, again, I know that you can't ever say, hey, that this is from God because it's personal with me. I understand that. But I am going to tell you that I knew I was supposed to go. And I said, I'll just go after work. And she died before I could get there. That's the urgency. That's the urgency. I, 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 I hope that I'm forgiven for that. Cause oh, yes. You know, I know, I know I am, but it's, it's a, it's a, you know, what I'm getting at though. I think that we, if you ever have feel an urgency, you need to go. Yeah. Cause it is urgent. Yeah. It is urgent. It is crazy. Wow. I don't know if it's as urgent as PJ's coffee. <laughs> well, the good thing about PJ's, James, is it's not as urgent as what we just talked about, for sure. However, if you want to become urgent about the Lord, PJ's coffee can sure help. It's a good place to start. Of yeah, you've got that great caffeine rush that'll get your mind racing, that'll get your ideas going about who to call, who to talk to. Uh, of course, you can do that in a wonderful environment. You, they can even meet you there at the PJ's car and really get started on this whole urgency of, of, of the Lord. And you would have it in a wonderful environment that would be clean and well-kept, as well as having great pastries, uh, breakfast, uh, lunch sandwiches, and of course, breakfast sandwiches, all natural Red Bull. And boosted teas in a wonderful environment there in the Houghton and TJ's. There we go. Listen, I want to do a little bit of a plug for um, for a podcast that we're going to be doing. Um, you know, because these things get out of order, this may be confusing. But uh, we're going to talk about um, things that may, a couple of things that may not seem related, but I think that it would be fun if you want to tune into this the the argument is that there has been a there has been an attack on any populist type movement worldwide so it doesn't matter if it's if it's in the united states if it's in italy if it's in brazil or wherever it is there that, that there's a movement of the one world order type people trying to kill it absolutely and it's there's a couple of things happened this weekend that might seem unrelated but they're not and it's this, that the president or prime minister, I forget what they call the person that heads uh, Italy, Georgia uh, Milani, uh, their Supreme Court said that her immigration practices were illegal. Not politically wrong, but illegal. Not unconstitutional, but illegal. And we know that they're trying to, with Trump, get rid of immunity of the president of the United States. And so if you tie those two things together, they could actually put Georgiana in jail for a political purposes. So we're going to go over that. Um, nothing, I think, again, is anything that you should be worried about. I think that God has got this whole thing in control. I pray each day for the defeat of communists. But I just want to put a little plug for you. Anybody who's listening to this, we do a secular podcast, and we will go over that. And I think that we got a lot to talk about on that. It'll be fun. It'd be fun. And, and I invite you guys to join us if you'd like to do it. 
Uh, thank you guys for listening to the Wednesday podcast. It's been doing very well. We're happy to have the listeners. Please let others know about it. Yes. And Jim, I know you got a lot of work to do, so we'll we'll shut this thing down and we'll see you tomorrow. Bye bye. All right. See you guys. Bye bye.